A Thoughtful Faith Podcast is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. So kind of uh, sort of the third act of, of what I'd be interested in speaking with you about, and I think we can kind of separate this into sort of two um, sort of Mormon uh, problems. Um, and the first one, I'll just kind of refer to it in sort of a vague way as sort of the problem of evil, the problem of suffering. Um, you know, this is something that has sort of plagued me in my life where you know, and I can only imagine as somebody who sort of swims in this all day, who sees a lot of human suffering and is also blessed to be able to alleviate that suffering. That must be a wonderful, a wonderful experience. But being able to, being uh, sort of presented that with that all day, I guess for me, one of my fundamental problems that I have is a God who will, you know, will hear the prayers of a mother whose child is dying and for whatever reason for whatever cosmic reason that that prayer isn't granted that request isn't answered but he'll still help me find my keys when i lose my keys <laughs> mm-hmm. and so that's sort of uh that's something that that makes it hard for me and i i'm actually really interested in having this discussion because you know it's stuff like that that actually makes it really hard for me sometimes to pray and hard for me to to talk with God because sometimes I feel like just like that my own problems are so small compared to the level of human suffering that that, that goes on in the world. And so, and then um, I know something that that we'll definitely talk talk about is just the idea of dealing with um, dealing with tragedy in our lives and the mourning process and. You know, as I'm sure you'll get into, you're you're often put in a situation where you're the bearer of really horrible, awful, catastrophic news mm-hmm. to families um, when when things go really bad, and and so that's sort of the kind of the stage I want to set for for how we'll kind of wrap things up here. So, um, and probably the best way. F- for us to kind of dive into that is to share any experiences that come to your mind about your practice. And maybe it'd be a good idea to kind of explain to us kind of what you, what sort of your, what sort of your career is like on a day-to-day basis um, dealing with uh, pediatric uh, neurological problems. Well, uh, pediatric neurology um, is an interesting field. There, um, it takes a certain type of person to be drawn to it. There's a big shortage. Um, there aren't enough of us. And uh, when you deal with problems of the brain, the old joke about neurologists is that they're admirers of disease and not healers of it. <laughs> oh, really? Wow. <laughs> Which is 
pretty cynical, but in some ways it's true because we don't have a great way to fix the brain. If the brain dies, it, it, there's this plasticity, but that can only do so much. Uh, we don't have a cure uh, for a lot of neurologic diseases. Now, that is overly pessimistic. I spend a lot of my day treating things that I can treat. We do have medications for epilepsy that work, and most kids do quite well. Some people have awful epilepsy that doesn't work. Um, uh, but I, I treat things uh, with the brain. Not, I'm not a surgeon, but I, things that you can treat medically. And that list to date has been limited compared to other fields. Um, uh, but is the exciting thing is that we're learning more all the time. And I think that it's also the, the field that you'll see a lot of new things that we'll be able to do that we weren't able in the past. And that's exciting. Uh, but uh, to be a child neurologist, you are going to be exposed um, to some real tragedy that happens. It's bad enough when it happens to adults, but is really hard when it happens to kids. And uh, most people have seen at some point in their life kids who have a horrible cerebral palsy where they're spastic and their muscles are all atrophied. They're very tight. Um, they can't talk necessarily or communicate and it's hard to know what they know um, but they're they're very limited and uh, it's built into our DNA to to feel a little repulsed by that um, in nature when there's a chick that's a little different it gets mauled and destroyed by the other chicks. Uh, it's survival of the fittest. It's, it's brutal. And um, to be a human is to feel a little of that, that repulsion. Um, to be a child neurologist, you feel that, but you learn, okay, that's okay, um, but now I need to move past that. And I need to see what I can do for this child. And instead of, the temptation is to just not deal, to just run away. Um, but uh, as a child neurologist, you you don't. <laughs> and uh, part of my attraction to it is that the families that, that deal with this are so lonely. Um, they need someone there on their side. Um, and uh, the families that deal with this are amazing people often, um, in part because of what they're going through. It, it's sort of a refiner's fire. Uh, but even more, there's a lot, once you get past that initial feeling, that we can learn from these kids. Um, Often, they're happy. Uh, what we see as suffering, I think, is often overestimated because we have this inborn feeling that how terrible that is. 
whereas they have no concept of that. They are what they are, and uh, they're fine with it. And uh, they have an innocence about them, and that, that kind of draws me to them. Um, the it, it is an unpopular field um, with pediatricians because it's hard when you, we're focused on healing and making things better. These are kids that aren't going to necessarily get better. There are lots of things you can do to make them comfortable. There are things you can do to prolong their life, and that is problematic for people who feel this feeling of this is wrong, that this we shouldn't be putting all these resources into something that we don't know how much of life they're really going to experience. Um, and uh, it's a, a tough thing to deal with and to know when you're doing right. Um, the problem with kids is they have these amazing hearts that are very hard to make stop beating. They can go through and all kinds of things that a grown-up would never survive, and you can bring the heart back. The brain's not as fortunate. Uh, so they survive things and come out limited. Um, and uh, we have technology now that we can breathe for them, we can keep their heart beating, but it's hard to know at what point are we, is that all we're doing? I, um, what is it in life that makes life worth living? And that's a tough question. I don't have the answer to. Uh, there, I think there does come a point where, you know, we are prolonging suffering. I think it's a point that we're naturally tend to overestimate and we can be over pessimistic. Um, we can grow cynical uh, around something that, that tough. Um, there, uh, when I was training, there are residents who would see families who had children like this, and they'll cling desperately to them, and they'll, they'll do everything they can for them, and they'll turn their life upside down, caring for them 24-7, turn their houses into many hospitals, and they'll bring their child in. And there are doctors in training that I trained with that really get upset by that. Um, because we are about making things better, and it's like you're parading failure right in front of us, but at the same time, they see how much this is costing, they see how little is there, and, and there's this whole concept of when is life not worth living, and uh, um, there was one actually that I know of that just stopped and asked this mother, when she brought her kid into the hospital with pneumonia for like the 10th time because couldn't swallow, so things would go down there, and, and that's how these kids die eventually, is repeated pneumonia over and over and over again. And she 
just flat out asked her, what are you getting from this? And they're getting something um, because they're giving so much. Uh, and th that question is easy to ask, but it's judgmental. Uh, and yet it's something, as a doctor, you see so much death <laughs> and pain and things that we do that we don't feel we should be doing, things that where you're, you're working and in for what, uh, that it's, you feel kind of hopeless and it, and it can turn into this anger. And I think it kind of burst out of this doctor. But to me, there's something really noble about taking the weakest among us and sacrificing for that person, right? That's love. Um, and uh, so I, I, I don't judge that, or, um, or I try not to judge that. At the same time, I, I've seen a patient who had what is a fatal disease, a fatal chromosome defect when they were born, that um, a mother basically lived at the hospital for an entire year keeping this kid alive when nothing worked. Nothing was going to work. It, it was just built wrong. There wasn't a single system in the body that worked right. It was just inevitable. It was inevitable, and she put it off, and she put it off, and she put it off, and to the point that her insurance maxed out, wouldn't pay for the hospital anymore. We talked to her again and again about hospice, about coming to a point where you can let this child go, and she just couldn't do it. And uh, the, the cost was horrendous. The baby was never out of the hospital. It was living all the time with, with tubes in it. And it wasn't ever going to develop. And it's hard. I think part of, I see, part of my job as I see it is to when, when people come to that kind of tragedy where they cling that hard um, onto the life of their child, well, that's natural. That, that's what they're supposed to do as a parent. Um, there does come a point where I think it's kinder to be able to help them let go uh, or be able to let go and let them uh, go home and the, to, to God. I mean, he's waiting for them. Uh, before we had this ability to make people breathe indefinitely and make their hearts keep beating, that's what happened, is, is they went home. Um, and, uh, you know, they talk about withdrawing support, how it feels like you're, you're killing the person that you withdraw support from, but really, you're allowing a natural death. You're, you're allowing nature to take its course. And when to do that is a thorny problem. I don't have the exact answer. I do think 
that uh, our own nature of being uncomfortable with, with things that are deformed, we, we do overestimate suffering. And I've learned that being around these kids, the way they smile, the way they don't seem to be upset at all at what's going on. They're, they're just living a life and they have their own experiences. Um, but there is a point, I, I, there's, there is a point where we need to be able to let go. And it's sometimes the kindest thing we can do, because often trying to save your child is about you and about your own feelings. We need to understand what makes their life meaningful and have faith that if we let them go, they are going to a better place, that, that they're going to be better off at some point. And that's something that I think takes a lot of prayer and uh, can vary from family to family. And um, as long as they put the thought and the prayer into it, I, I don't judge and I've had to learn not to judge. You know, for me, when we're talking about these kind of problems, like these kind of diseases, I feel like that's just the, the tip of the iceberg for the disproportionate amount of suffering that goes on in the world. And so do you, I mean, is that ever something that you sort of grapple with personally at all? Do you have sort of a theodicy that, that works through it? Or um, do, well, you, do you attempt to do that? Yeah, theodicy is a philosophical problem that no one's ever been able to solve, I think, completely. And I don't pretend to have the entire answer. <laughs> right. Uh, I do have to... Um, look at, uh, and, and you know, disability is just one face of that. I mean, I, I have an easier time, I think, with things that just happen because they happened. Um, it's a miracle that babies are born intact as often as they are. It, it's, it's amazing. Um, the way we can come from one cell, have this entire program, and have n nothing go wrong all the way along. I, I mean, it, it has to go wrong sometimes. Uh, and uh, it's easier, I think, for me to come to peace with that. What is harder is when a kid comes out healthy, has a normal life, and then suddenly disaster strikes. Uh, living here in Arizona, uh, I see way too many cases of near drowning, where because a kid's heart and lungs are so healthy and the heart is very hard to stop, it, it may stop, but it will keep working and working, and eventually we can get a heartbeat. It may be that we kept working too long because emotionally we aren't going to give up on a kid, uh, that the brain is, is gone. And uh, I think that's one of the worst parts of my job. Uh, it's so hard to go into a family and tell them that this kid that was normal yesterday isn't going to be able to talk. Uh, they're not going to be able to swallow, perhaps. They may need to be fed through a tube. 
they may not be able to hold their own airway open to breathe and may need to breathe with a machine. They may not be able to see or hear and it might be the kindest thing you can do is to let them go. Um, that's not something anyone's ever ready to hear. <laughs> and uh, it's something that you want to shrink away from. You want to tiptoe. You want to just say, we're doing what we can. We're doing what we can. Uh, you want to put off having those talks, but you know, when they do studies, the kind of studies they do at a Jesuit medical school about giving bad news, you learn that people almost always do better when you give them the straight scoop. This is what it is. Well, people with faith, uh, religious people in particular, don't ever want to hear that, ever. <laughs> because you're, you're, you're taking away their hope that they're clinging to desperately, that they use to support, and, and that's natural for them. And, uh, and I've had times that I tend to come off, uh, maybe because I'm not having a good day, too abrupt with it, uh, not too... Too frank. Too frank, and, and not consider it enough um, in, in helping gently to because no one's going to come to that understanding immediately it's going to be you're planning an idea that they're going to have to come to to grieve and to get to a point they can accept it um, and uh, people don't like that and I've had the whole talk about how can I take away someone's faith and it is natural in that position to expect a miracle, uh, to hope for a miracle, to pray for a miracle, uh, and pray as hard and as sincere as you've ever prayed. And being in the position I am, and as, as Americans, we're, we're very isolated from death and very uncomfortable with it. Um, but I've seen that almost all the time, the miracle doesn't happen. Um, and it, it's a hard question, well, why does, would the miracle ever happen? If, if it's going to happen to one person, what was wrong with the other hundred that it didn't? Um, and uh, I don't know the answer. I, I do know that if it always happened, that all you had to do was pray and it got better, then it wouldn't be that miraculous, would it? <laughs> I mean, uh, true, true. It, it wouldn't be even anything that you appreciate, but that still doesn't help, you know, the seeming injustice of that. And there is suffering. For the parents, I think more than anyone in that situation, I can't imagine that happening to my child either. And I feel just a piece of it each time I have to go in there. And it's like a piece of me is dying. It's hard. Um, yeah, I can't imagine. Well, so because here's, uh, here's where I see um, sort of uh, 
feel like Mormons in a lot of ways were especially susceptible to things sort of falling apart in these situations because you know we're we're sort of taught that um, we're, we're sort of given a program where if you are righteous, if you live righteously, if you follow this prescribed lifestyle and you do all thing all the things that are right, you're sort of going to be protected from these situations and if and if tragedy does happen because you're righteous, because you're um, you're faithful, the Lord will deliver you from it. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, you can argue with whether that's doctrinally accurate or not, but it's definitely culturally accurate. Yeah. And so I think uh, I think that can be a problem. And you know, specifically, what I'm thinking about, um, probably the most poignant example of this, is um, uh, John DeLynn's interview with Eldon Karchner. Did you ever listen to that? You know that, and I've met Eldon a couple times, and he's such an amazing guy. He's he's such a, a amazing, wonderful human being. I don't know him that well, but just that even my, you know, very limited interaction I've had with him in the past, you know, my impression of him is that he's just an amazing human being. And you know, here's a here's a gay man who followed the program that the church gave gay people at the time, which was to try to have a heterosexual marriage. By by a miracle, it worked. He had a very healthy, happy marriage, mm -hmm. and he was living the gospel the way that he was supposed to. And then his wife gets cancer, and she slowly dies over the course of a couple years. And she's given all these blessings and promised these miraculous healings during these blessings, and then it just it just doesn't happen and mm -hmm. um, you know that's and I'm sure other people of other faiths deal with that sort of problem too but I uh, you know from the reference of a Mormon perspective I know that's probably something very common and I know you you know living in the East Valley of the of Phoenix you know there's a, there, there's a high higher concentration of, of LDS folks out here um, you probably have a lot of LDS patients. Mm -hmm. So, what are what are your thoughts about that? Well, you know, just this weekend we had we give lip service to you know trials are going to come, trials will make us stronger. Problem is we're way too glib about it. Uh, I just sat through a lesson on that last week, and uh, it's it's um, people don't. Have, appreciate the depth of the trial when we're at church we're we're trying too hard to put on the happy face that that we don't appreciate that there really is suffering um there's something to be said for allowing yourself to suffer with someone else there's something sacred about that bearing one another's burdens um and uh, I, I think we're afraid to do that too much. I, I don't think, I mean, we, we talk about it, and I, I, I know there are people who do get it uh, in the church. It's not, we, we, we tend to generalize too much um, because there are people who don't, clearly. Um, and, and going through that changes you, uh, and that kind of grief 
uh, will will change your your entire foundation. It's it's earth shaking, um, and whether that leads to a good thing or not, you you don't know. You find out what you're made of. Well, here's here's the other side of it. A lot of times we tend to couch human suffering in the context of you know, all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. Yeah. Um, you know, we're taught that, you know, for example, uh, um, you know, somebody that has a child that's born with some uh, mental disability or morphological problem or whatever the case may be, um, you know, a child that's, you know, severely mentally handicapped, you know, and... Um, I'm sorry, this is becoming more and more of a compound concept here. You know, we're, we're taught the concept that these are valiant spirits. and mm -hmm. and But I think, you know, I don't really necessarily take issue with that specifically. But what I sort of have a problem with and what I sort of struggle with is the idea that that person or that, that child is there to give you an experience. Mm -hmm. You know, an experience that's going to make you a better, stronger person. And there's nothing wrong with becoming a better, stronger person, but what I take issue with, and what I hear a lot of people take issue with, is that strength and that experience comes at the expense of this child that isn't able to live a normal, healthy, happy life. And so, you know, I don't want anything that benefits me to come at the expense of somebody else's experience or happiness in life. But sometimes, I, sometimes we, uh, we tend to, uh, you know, give that spin on it, and I don't know if that's and I'm not trying to be cynical either, but those are just some 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 issues that I have uh, with with sort of that approach. Um, yeah, I think there are some real problems with that approach. Um, it's a way that we're we're speculating to try and justify something uncomfortable, and some things in life are just uncomfortable. Um, and what it ends up doing. Uh, like you said, it does make it more about you, but it also causes us, because someone's broken, to just write them off and say, oh, they didn't need a mortal experience. That's not true. Uh, in most cases, these kids that are limited, now, I'm, that obviously there comes a point where they're just so limited it's hard to see what they're getting out of life. Uh, and, and those are tough cases, but so many of these other cases, they're here. They can learn, uh, maybe not as fast, maybe not as easily as you or I. Uh, they can respond to discipline, but people don't want to discipline them because, oh, they're special. <laughs> and you just write the child off. Uh, they're here and they're having a moral experience. And it may not be the same moral experience that you or I are having, but they're having it. And we need to learn to see them as people and not a trial. Um, right. Uh, that's something I feel pretty strongly about. I'd, were they more valiant in the pre-existence or not? I, I don't know. I, how can you know that? But they have things they need to learn now. They're here, and, and we need to do what we can to help them grow and develop as much as possible. Now, that's a little off track from 
how we deal with the Odyssey. It's how we deal with brokenness. I think we're so obsessed with perfection, especially in our culture. There's a beauty in brokenness, um, in simplifying things right down to what's important. Um, there's something amazing when a child, any child, just smiles back at you. They're, uh, it's love. <laughs> it, they, they radiate it. Uh, and it, it's there. Um, and we need to learn to see disability not necessarily as a weakness or as a lack of experience. Uh, we overestimate tragedy in those cases. I, I, I sincerely believe that. But that's my disability cake. Uh, <laughs> I like that. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. Um, and so kind of what I'm hearing from sort of your response is, um, you know, I actually, uh, it's funny you mentioned that Elders Quorum lesson because that's the lesson I, I, I'm an Elders Quorum instructor and I taught that lesson. And actually, uh, I took that as an opportunity to just introduce the whole concept of the problem of evil and the uh, okay. and stuff like yeah. that. I thought that was a fun way to kind of, uh, kind of bring sure. that up. Something that Mormons never talk about. Um, <laughs> but, um. You know, it's interesting. Well, that, when we do talk about it, it's all like, well, God said it'll be for our experience and our good. It's how we grow, blah, blah, blah. Moving and, on. And we're just glib <laughs> about it. it right. We, we ignore the very real pain, unimaginable pain that is behind some of the things that happen in life, uh, like having a child with near drowning, or even worse, the things that we can are capable of doing to each other. I don't think I can make peace with things, kids that are just born limited and broken. I have a very hard time when in a fit of anger, an adult destroys and limits the future of a child. Uh, causing, shaking a baby, causing its brain to bleed, fracturing it. That is, uh, that is where you really are, like, why are we allowed to do this to each other? And that's the heart of theodicy. And yes, it's, it's not an easy problem. Um, and I think that is the cost of agency um, that yeah we agreed to, to come down here to get experience but there is a reason and, and when you see stuff like this you come to understand there's a reason I think that a third of the host of heaven didn't want anything to do with that I think they, they might have understood this that this has some appalling consequences that we can make choices for ourselves and those choices can cause an unimaginable suffering. Um, and uh, 
so while yes we teach it was necessary to have agency and agency can lead to problems it's uncomfortable because it's a hard problem to know is it really okay that, yeah. that this right. happens and and i think there's a i, I really enjoyed listening to Terrell Givens talk about the God who weeps to know that he sees that suffering. It doesn't, it doesn't escape him and Christ sees that suffering and it doesn't escape him. And he knows that that was the cost of coming here and it is tragic and it's okay to, to question and to say this, this is painful. This is tragic. God himself feels it. Um, that's the cost. Uh, from our whole way of thinking of, of being here is that these kind of things will happen. Uh, there's no escaping it. Right. You know, I think for me, probably what the one of the most beautiful things about um, that part of the Book of Moses is, is God is showing Enoch the type of suffering and evil that we're talking about, that not even God tries to make a theodicy. No. He doesn't try to explain it away or put a spin on it. He just says, I know. This is awful. Doesn't this just suck? And, mm -hmm. and, he, and, he, and he feels it. He feels the pain too. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that's, there's something really powerful about that. And so I'm glad you brought that up because yeah. I think that's... Well, that's something that's, that's really special that's, about our yeah. theology. Yeah, that's the problem of evil is that it's there and we have to face it. And in order to to get to something better, yes, we 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 have to endure this this pure tragedy. And yes, we're the workmanship of His hands, and look at how we suffer. Very cool. Uh, yeah. So that's some pretty heavy stuff. Heavy stuff right there. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I think uh, it's really valuable to have these discussions because we kind of, you're right, we kind of avoid that. Um, so, you know, just to kind of wrap things up, um, let's talk about, um, you know, and, and I don't want to, I don't want people to think that I'm sort of picking on Mormon culture. I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm just saying that, uh, you know. I think that there are things that we do really well and things that we can we can improve on. I can tell you that other religions have the same issues. Right. I, right. I, and that's an I important thing to with recognize. That conversation <laughs> with Mormons and non-Mormons, and when they're people of faith, uh, they struggle. It, it's not unique, but it is a struggle. Yeah. In your experience, you know. How do different people, like if you were to take a cross-section of the families that you deal with, you know, who sort of copes better with these issues than others? Like do religious people do a better job? People who are more secular, atheist, you know, do they have a harder time? Or is, there, or is it really just kind of a, a mixed bag? It, it's, it's mixed. You, you see some of both. Um, one thing about how you handle this um, with religion, you can go off the rails in, in the sense that you are always 
pro-life, life is always the choice. It's always the right choice. It's what you have to do. You don't have faith if you give up on someone's life. People feel like it's a real failure to let someone go. I don't believe that, having seen it. Um, I have a friend who had a child that was born with a brain that just did not work. Uh, in the first thing they knew, first day of life, the, the child started having seizures. Uh, looked like a normal baby otherwise, um, but had seizures. Uh, and because it had seizures and they knew me, I got drawn into this. They don't live near me or anything like that. Um, and that child had a electrical brain pattern that's just totally dysfunctional. This brain wasn't going to do anything. And uh, I got to break the news to them that this child isn't going to develop. Um, that they're, they're not going, they're likely not going to be able to to feed themselves, that they'll be requiring a tube to do that for, for the rest of their life. They may not be able to breathe and hold their airway open. They might need to breathe through a hole in, in the trachea. And they may not ever smile uh, because there really just isn't any way electrically this brain is functioning from what we see when we read it. And it's a known condition. and this is what happens. And that was a hard thing to tell them. And, uh, and I got to tell them because they had, their doctors had the natural reaction of putting off that. And they asked me directly because, hey, I'm their friend and I'll give them a straight scoop. And, and I did. And it broke my heart. Um, they prayed about it. They went the route of, of placing the tube. They saw how vacant, as, as the baby got a little older, a few months, the, the baby was. And it, it, they came to understand that it might not be the best thing to, to prolong this child's life. And they made the decision to withdraw support, to allow natural death. And that's not a decision that many religious people make, in my experience. Um, and they blogged about it, and they had to take the blog down because they start getting abuse uh, from all kinds of religious people. How can you do that? You people are so horrible. Jeez. Uh, and they... It was hard enough that it's always hard to withdraw support. And I think it takes a lot more courage and a lot more faith to make that choice and to trust it's going to be all right. This child's going to a better place. Do we believe that or don't we? Um, right. <laughs> but, but this friend, their bishop, actually came to him and said, I think you're doing the wrong thing. Without really knowing the details, without talking to them, just told them, no, this is wrong. You shouldn't be doing this. 
and that dug the knife just in so much deeper. Uh, talk about not mourning with those that mourn. We, t we want to hold so tightly to life that we just don't know when to let it go. And there does come a time to let it go. And it's not like it didn't cause them heartache. Uh, they felt literally like they were killing their child. And I have nothing but admiration for them, for having the courage to let them go. And it took much longer than they were told by doctors it would because they were flushing water in through the tube when that wasn't the kindest thing to do because it made the whole ordeal much longer. Um, and... Uh, as part of making it comfortable, they were giving medicine, but they weren't thinking about, oh, we're also, it's like we're giving IV fluids and, and hydrating them. Uh, and they went through a rough time. And I do think that that is one place where being religious, we can trip up. That we're so, you've got to do the right thing. Oh, this is a trial. For you, like you were saying, that uh, you're horrible if you're not, you know, pro-life. That, that there's not a point at which God is calling someone home. I know there is a point. <laughs> and I, I admire the faith of someone who can stand up and do that because they know it's right. More than the people... Who pray for the miracle because the miracle praying for the miracle is easy that's natural this takes some real courage and real faith um, and I think we we need to realize that sometimes the, the better choice and the tougher choice is to let go um, so as far as handling it that is where I, I can see it trip up gotcha <laughs> Yeah, that's, you know, yeah, that's such a, it's so, it's so complicated and so subjective and, you know, we should never judge people for, for doing that. And like you said, it's, it's an admirable, noble, you know, it goes against every, every natural instinct you have as a parent to, to let that happen. But, um, yeah, I like, I like that you shared that. Thank you. Um, so, um, kind of the last thing and you, and you just sort of already touched on it. You know, one thing that, um, I think is, uh, is really wonderful about, um, Mormon culture is we love that we, that we have truth. We love that we have, you know, we have better answers to certain issues than, than perhaps other faith traditions do. We have a lot of strengths in our theology and our doctrine, and um, but sometimes uh, that can uh, sort of be a stumbling block too, because you know, in the face of really horrible tragedies in life, a lot of times our instinct as Mormons is to say, "No, no, no, it's fine. It's going to be okay." You know. Um, there's no reason not there's no reason to be sad 
because we have the gospel and the gospel makes us happy. And that's when we start rationalizing the existence of tragedy. Well, maybe the reason this horrible thing happened is so so this other thing can happen or it's going to build your faith. And, you know, we like having answers, right? We love having answers to really tough things. And, um, and I guess there's nothing really fundamentally wrong with that except sometimes it... Um, it robs us of the opportunity to like to do what you what you already mentioned to actually mourn with people and bear their burdens you know mm-hmm. um, just the just like the way Christ bears our burdens the way he bears our burdens is suffering with us through them right exactly and you know we make a covenant to 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 bear each other's burdens and if when we have an opportunity to do that, instead of doing that, we say, it's okay. You know, sometimes yeah. that I think that um, we, we may have a tendency to do that. Mm-hmm. And so, so I like kind of how our, how our discussion is kind of revolving around that issue where, you know, sometimes we're really bad at mourning. Sometimes we're really bad at grieving. And, you know, when I hear that funerals are the primary purpose of a funeral is to be a missionary opportunity. That just makes me sick. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> that's so wrong. You know um, that you know it's sort of a it's sort of a you know kind of a confusing thing because we do want to celebrate the life of somebody. We want to celebrate and, and memorialize them, but we can't forget that there's a reason to embrace the pain and embrace the grief and embrace the suffering as as you've talked about mm-hmm. what are what are some of your thoughts about that um well, i think you're you're right on right on the money there um that uh there's there's something sacred about mourning with those that mourn I and mean, maybe this will be for our experience but you have to allow yourself to experience it um you have to be able to grieve if you don't it's it's unhealthy uh, and it keeps you from from learning, and it and it comes out in in ways that can increase your suffering. That that's a recipe for depression, if ever there was one. Uh, to repress, actually dealing or acknowledging that this really is awful and hard. And we don't have an answer for it, um, but we can have faith that you know maybe someday we will. Uh, that doesn't mean we can't let ourselves be baffled and suffer to get there. In fact, that's the only way I think that we'll get there is to let it happen, let the experience work itself in. It is easier for that experience um, when you can do it together, and there's a, there's a sacred bond and a unity that can be built that way. Um, yeah, I like that. Yeah, you know, uh, as much as life is meant to be a test, it's also meant to be a crucible. You know, and we have to embrace both those parts. You know, mm-hmm. we're here to be. Um, we're here to experience trials and to see how we react to those trials, but we're also meant to experience mortality and all its in all its messiness, you know.
Well, um, what I would like to do to sort of wrap things up, I thought it would be kind of cool, um, and you don't have to, to, to do this if you want, um, two things. I, I would love to hear, um, I'd like to hear some miracles that you may have experienced sort of in your, in your, um, in your career of treating these, uh, treating these children. Are there any, um, you know, really positive experience where you, uh, I, I know there must be positive experience where you were able to uh, facilitate the healing of somebody. Are there any ones that really stick out to you? And then I would just love kind of as sort of the bookend to this conversation, you know, where the pillars of your faith are, you know, you can share your testimony if you want, or just, you know, help us end on a really high uplifting note. Mm -hmm. So, so what, what, what would you like to share? Mm -hmm. You do get to the point um, with, with seeing the near drownings to just, anytime they've called me, I come to expect that, okay, it's always going to go the same way. Um, but there was uh, one beautiful little girl um, who was down by all accounts for too long with no heartbeat. Um, that um, w did make it through and, and did wake up, um, but wasn't talking. And uh, I was sure she was going to be pretty limited. Uh, and then after two or three days, she started talking. And it was like nothing had ever happened. <laughs> and uh, oh, I needed that. I needed to see one good outcome from this problem that every time, like I said, a piece of me dies every time I get one of those calls. Uh, and it, it was wonderful to finally be able to say that I, I expect your child to make a full recovery when I couldn't have said that a couple of days before. I'm in pessimism mode, help them accept this, that it's never going to be the same, blah, blah, blah. Well, it wasn't true in their case. Uh, there, there are simpler things that I love. There are kids, there's a type of epilepsy called absence epilepsy, where kids have staring spells where their brain's just clicking off for seconds at a time, multiple times a day. They'll be called ADD, they'll be failing in school. Finally, somehow, they'll make it to me, and we'll do an EG, and we'll, we'll figure out, okay, this is what you have. There's nothing more gratifying to hear you put them on medicine, boom, those seizures have stopped, and all of a sudden they're flourishing. And they've never seen them like this. They're learning, they're growing, they're happy, they're engaged, they're not missing half of their life. Uh, that's a wonderful feeling. And uh, there are those experiences in neurology as much as... Uh, some of my uh, co-workers would think there aren't. There are, <laughs> and uh, there are things. It's a wonderful feeling to know that you've made a difference in a kid's life, a real difference in how they're going to be able to function in their future. Uh, and there's a lot um, that's gratifying about having a family tell you 
how much it's meant to them to have been there through a hard time or how much it means to them that you know their child, that you're happy to see them, that you don't always wear this down face all the time, but that you see them as who they are. That they, Parents crave that. They wish that people could be comfortable around their children. And so when you reach that point where you are, it's really gratifying uh, to know that you can help give that to them. And uh, I, I like that connection and that intensity. It's, it's what keeps me going. So if you were to, you know, share what the pillars of your faith are, you know, you know, what, you know, what's the most meaningful part of the gospel and Mormonism? Like what, where do you derive the most satisfaction and meaning from? What are sort of the pillars of your faith? The pillars of my faith, I think, are the potential that we have as children of God. Um, I love that idea about what we can become, that it's why we're here putting up with all this, that um, that God wants us to have everything that he has. Um, And that he's there. He's he's on our side. He's he's at times seems frustratingly distant or abstract, but but when we need him the most and reach down the deepest, I've been eventually able to find him. Um, and after feeling alone, that he's there. Um, I don't know, is that too Sunday school? <laughs> it just felt real to me. Okay. <laughs> okay. Cool. Uh, but yeah, that's the most, the most meaningful thing to me is that we are literally children of God. Um, and, uh, as limited as we are, as as far from that as we are, uh, and I think part of the reason that rings with me so much is because I've had so much self-doubt and feelings of worthlessness that that's been a real revelation. Uh, that concept has changed my, the whole way that I can look at life and has gotten me to a much better place. Um, and I think um, that alone uh, makes the restoration meaningful to me because it's been so powerful. Um, the other thing I think is powerful and beautiful, and I don't know if this even fits with where we've been, but uh, Doctrine and Covenants, section 121, um, is about dogma, <laughs> the abuse of power. Joseph wrote that when there had been some pretty bad things going on that most people don't know about church history. 
where we paint ourselves as the victim, but we were talking about extermination. There were secret societies carrying out attacks, and Joseph didn't seem to be anywhere to be seen, and the church was almost destroyed. And in that prison, thinking about where did things go so wrong, he wrote one of the most amazing things I've ever read. And that alone, in my book, makes him a prophet. Because it, it's the key uh, that no power or authority can be forced on anyone. That it's only by love and persuasion and meekness. And that's how God works. He doesn't make us come to him. He draws us to him. He, he suffers with us. He's on our side and he pulls us toward him. Um, but there's no compulsion. And when we feel compulsion in the church, I know because it's there in the scriptures that that's not coming from God. That's coming from our own shortcomings. Yeah, I really love section 121 because it is it is a, a condemnation on on Joseph in a lot of ways, but it's also an answer to Joseph's question. Exactly. Oh God, where art thou? And he's saying, <laughs> right here, that's not the fruit of the spirit. Of, that's not a fruit of the priesthood. Mm -hmm. I can't just come down there and deliver you. Sure. You know, that's compul not by compulsory means. <laughs> and so he's also teaching Joseph why they're suffering, why he can't always intervene, and. Um, and I think there's a lot of beauty in that, too. Well, Dr. Jeremy Timothy, thanks for, for spending the past little bit with me and sharing your story and your perspective. Well, thanks for having me. Come thou fount of every blessing to my heart to sing thy grace. Thank you for joining us today on A Thoughtful Faith. To discuss this podcast, check us out at athoughtfulfaith.org. The music from this podcast was generously donated by Lisa Frazier. Hear more from her at lisafrazier.com.
Thank you.